0: This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. To The Word of God this morning to come with me to Genesis chapter 3. Just want to read one verse, Genesis 3 i uh, reading verse 20. And Adam called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. And Adam called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. And so today is Mother's Day and therefore we shall <coughs> pay a well-deserved tribute to mothers, especially those who are in God's house this morning. In God's economy, mothers hold a very special and significant place in society in general and in family in particular. And it's no wonder that the God of this world has done everything to denigrate and to malign this God-given noble position of motherhood. And if you would listen to the media, particularly the leftist media, uh, then you would see that for a very long time, uh, for a woman to have a child, that was the kiss of death to any ambition uh, or any goals you had set in life or any career that you might want it to pursue. And uh, in the world of celebrity today, particularly those celebrities who perhaps have done a lot in, in the movie industry or perhaps on television and or in theater, and they get to that time of the age where they feel, well, I've accomplished a lot, but there's still something missing in my life. Oh, yes, a baby. I, I must have a baby. And, and oftentimes, in, in the most dubious of circumstances, they end up with a, a baby. And, uh, and for a while, it becomes like a, a designer accessory. Uh, and oftentimes, that child grows up with not a very uh, good example, should we say. And, uh, and sometimes it ends up uh, just a mess. And uh, giving birth is one thing. Being a mother is another thing. But being a godly mother is a different story altogether. And I trust this morning that if I've been looking out over this congregation, that I'm looking at godly mothers. And uh, before we go any further in this and before we look at the scriptures... I just want to read to you a couple of things about thoughts and motherhood and parenting. Uh, William, sorry, Henry Hines, the the inventor of the baked bean industry of the 57 variety type, Uh, whenever his will was being read out, here's what it said. Looking forward to the time when my earthly mother will end, I desire to set very forth at the beginning of this will, as the most important item in it, a confession of my faith in Jesus Christ as my Saviour. That's a bit of a surprise to most of you, isn't it? That he was a born again believer. I also desire to bear witness to the fact that throughout my life, in which there were many unusual joys and sorrows, I have been wonderfully sustained by my faith in God through Jesus Christ. This legacy was left me by my consecrated mother, a woman of strong faith, and to it I attribute any success I have attained. Thomas Edison, the great inventor. His tribute to his mother was this. I did not have my mother long, but she cast over me an influence which has lasted all my life. The good effects of her early training I could never lose. If, I had not, if it had not been for her appreciation and her faith in me at a critical time in my experience, I should never have likely become an inventor. I was always a careless boy, and with a mother of a different mental caliber, I should have turned out badly. But her firmness and her sweetness and her goodness were potent powers to keep me in the right path. My mother, mother was the making of me. The memory of her will always be a blessing uh, to me. And then there's the humorous little story of this wee boy, and he goes into the big department store, and he very shyly and timorously goes into the lingerie department, and he asks the assistant, Could I buy a slip for my mother? And she said to him, Well, what size is your mother? And he says, Well, I'm darned of a no. He says, well, uh, I'll help you. Was she tall or small? Was she fat or was she skinny? He thought a moment, and he gave her a big smile. He says, my mother was just perfect. (laughs) And so she got a size 32 and wrapped it all up, sent it home. Tuesdays later, his mother came in and changed it to size 54. (laughs) 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 But to him, she was just perfect. Now, I should say, before we go any further, that uh, it may be that you would say to me, Pastor, I never knew my mother. I was orphaned at a young age. Or my mother died when I was very small, and, and I really have no recollection of my mother. Or even, yes, I do recall my mother, and... I'm sorry to say, not very fondly. Unfortunately, she wasn't really a real mother to me. Now, I will say that can happen and does happen, but that is the exception rather than the rule. And so today I'm applying to the rule. And if you are in that position that I've just mentioned there, then you apply what I'm going to say to yourself if you are a mother because you can be the best mother there is to your children. So let me speak just uh, for a few moments this morning on some godly mothers in scripture and talk about their qualities and their virtues and their graces. Uh, And each one of them is different and each one seemed to have a different quality. Uh, First of all, if you turn to Exodus chapter 2, and while you do that, I turn to Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, it says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. In Exodus chapter two, <clears throat> in verse, Exodus sorry, yes, Exodus chapter two, verse one. And a man of the house of Levi, who was Amram, went and took a wife, went and took as wife, a daughter of Levi, which was Jacobet. And so the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him and daubed it with asphalt and pitch and put the child in it and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Now this was a period when there was a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph had come into power. And you remember that the children of Israel at this time because of the great family that had been in the land and Joseph's uh, family came in to live in the land of Goshen and then they began to multiply. And so by this time, there was a multitude of them in the land of Goshen. And they were doing no harm. In fact, they were a blessing to Egypt. But this Pharaoh, who knew not Joseph, who did not care about the Hebrews and who was concerned because they had grown to such a scale that if an army came to attack Egypt, that they would be with with this attack, an army and join forces against Egypt. And so for political reasons, uh, he decided to make life very, very difficult for them. This, by the way, is the first recorded anti-Semite in history. (coughs) And there's been a very, very long list of them, even to this very day as we speak. And so he made life very difficult for them. In fact, he, he turned them into slaves... Uh, And they became slave labor for Egypt for the great building programs of this new pharaoh. But instead of that (laughs) destroying them, actually they thrived under that and they grew all the more. And so he came up with another plan. And the other plan was that he would speak to the, give orders to the Hebrew midwives that if any male Hebrew children were born, that they were to kill them that no male Hebrew child was to live. And these Hebrew nurses (laughs) refused that order, thank God. And that, by the way, is the first recorded act of civil disobedience in history. And he was livid. And they said, well, it's not our fault because these Hebrew women are lively and, and they give birth before we come. The truth probably was that they delayed their going to them so they would give birth and hide their children, whatever. And so then it got worse, and he gave a command to all the Egyptians that if you know of or see or hear of any Hebrew child, male child being born, kill it, throw it in the nile and drown it. Of course, you can see that, by the way, is trying to destroy the whole Hebrew race. Because if no Hebrew males were born, and the rest of the Hebrew males, through hard labor and so forth, would die off, then there would be no Hebrew race. Because the Hebrew girls, which they weren't to kill, they would assimilate themselves into Egyptian society, and that would be end the Hebrew race. Ever since then, there has been a determined push by anti-Semite leaders to destroy Israel. Just over 70 years ago, we had Hitler doing that. And he didn't succeed. Today, we have the leader of Iran threatening to crush and to destroy the whole of Israel. But he will not succeed either. Because God's plan for them is yet not fully fulfilled. And so, as we can see here, when this child was born... It was a goodly child, a beautiful child. And Jacobed, and it particularly singles her out as a mother-ness. Hebrews 11 is the parents, but particularly it showcases the mother here. And she decided that this little baby would not die. And I don't think just because it was her her little boy, I don't think it was because he was a beautiful child. I think because she knew and felt that this he was special. God's call would be on his life. He really had an older sister, Miriam, and Aaron. By this time, would have been his older brother. When he was born, he would be about three years old by this time, and so she wanted to keep him. But by faith, by faith, she made this little ark of bulrushes and put him into the Nile, which is a very courageous thing to do. But because it says she did it by faith, she was trusting God. Somehow, some way, would take care of this little one. And sure enough, you know what happens, doesn't it? Uh, Verse 5 Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. And then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew woman that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. And so the maiden went and called the child's mother. And then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. And so the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew, and then she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. And then she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, because I drew him out of the water. The very place that Pharaoh wanted to destroy this little boy was the very place in the providence of God that he would be saved. God is smarter than the evil one, isn't he? And so, the rest is history. This little child grew up to be the great leader and lawgiver of Israel, a giant of the Old Testament, the giant of the Old Testament. All through the devotion and the faith of a godly mother, Godly mothers are mothers of faith who believe that God has got a future for their kids, and who trust the Lord and believes in the Lord and hopes in the Lord, and has faith in the Lord that that will be the case. You see, there are pharaohs out there who wants to destroy our children. They want to destroy their morality. They want to destroy their integrity. They want to destroy their spirituality. They want to destroy their character. They want to destroy everything about them. But godly mothers have faith that their child will survive all of that. But let me tell you something else. It takes if not even more faith for the prodigal children. For the ones that the enemy did attract to this world. That did con, That did deceive. That they did follow the ways of this world. It takes faith to believe that God will bring them back. That what you put into them that they will return, that the Spirit of God will not let them go, and and in their waking hours, somehow, some way, that the Spirit of God will speak to them and send somebody across their path at some point, and their hearts will turn again towards the Lord. Hallelujah. That takes faith to believe that, because often everything seems the opposite to you. Your children are doing the opposite to what you ever taught them. And they say, I have no interest in the things of God. I don't want to go to church. I have no interest in God or church or the Bible or anything like that. And it takes a lot of faith at that point to still trust and believe God that they will come back. Do you believe that today? (coughs) And then, of course, that story that is so familiar to you in 1 Samuel chapter 1, the story of Hannah. And how Hannah was married to Elkanah, a godly man, but he had two wives, Peninnah and Hannah. And Peninnah was giving him many children, but Hannah was barren. And it says... In 1st Simon chapter 1, in verse 5 at the end of it, the Lord had closed her womb. The Lord had closed her womb. And as I told you before, whenever we read this just a few weeks ago, that in those days, not to have a child to be born was a stigma. And every woman wanted to have a son particularly because the son might be the Messiah. And so she didn't have children. And that made her feel bad. But what made her feel worse was Elkanah's other wife, Peninnah, who gave her a really hard time and who mocked her. Verse 6 says, her rival also provoked her severely, and to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. And so Penina was right in that, that the Lord had closed her womb. But not for the reason she thought. Because what would have been thought traditionally was, if the Lord has closed your womb, if you're a barren, it's a punishment from God. He's displeased with you. He's not letting you have kids because he's displeased with you. So she was right in the aspect that the Lord had closed her womb, but she was wrong for the reason for it. The Lord had closed her womb because he was waiting for the right time to bring her child into this world at the most crucial time in Israel's history. That would change their history and he would be the one that would do it. And so they would go up to the house of God to Shiloh, year by year, to bring their offerings. And that's when she provoked her even more and mocked her even more. She was really, really nasty. Then Elkanah, Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is it that your heart is grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? So Hannah rose after she had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. And Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child... Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. He'll be a Nazarite from the day he's born to the day he dies. And it happened, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke with her heart, only her lips smoothed, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she was drunk. I bet he did because his two sons, his priests, were scoundrels who were drunk all the time, and no doubt he saw them lying in the corner with their mouths moving. So I said to her, How long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Han answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit, and I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition, which you have asked of him. So he immediately realized that she was genuine. And he just spontaneously just says, Well, just go in peace, and the Lord answer that prayer you have been praying. And he just said it just as simple as that. But at that moment, look what happens. Then she said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. In other words, let what you just said be true. Let God favor me. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Ha, huh. she believed it. Up to this point, she was in anguish of soul and she was crying salt tears. But suddenly, when he says, go your way and the Lord grant you your request, immediately her heart was struck and she believed that. And a big smile came on her face. And she thought to herself, God is going to answer my prayer. The burden has lifted. I believe and I'm trusting from this moment on, God will answer my prayer. Have you ever been to that place where you felt God had answered your prayer before you got the manifestation of the answer? Because at that moment, internally, as far as her organs were concerned, nothing had changed. Physically, she was just the same, but in her spirit, in her heart, she was different. Now she's believing. Now she's saying, It's done. I don't know how, but it's done. God's gonna do this. Has that ever happened to you? Where you've been praying and praying and praying and praying, and then suddenly, suddenly you get that knowing in your heart that this prayer is going to be answered. I don't even need to pray this again. It's done. And it was for her. You see, godly mothers are praying mothers. They're praying mothers some of us wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for praying mothers and maybe are we praying grannies and grandas thank God for them and so they went home and it says in the next verse Elkanah knew Hannah his wife and the Lord remembered her not that he'd ever forgotten about her it doesn't mean he'd forgotten about her because she was praying every day but now it was the time to act so it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, because I've asked for him from the Lord. Samuel means asked. I've asked. And I've received. And then if you read on, you'll see that after about maybe three to four years when the child was weaned, she took him up to the house of God at Shiloh. In verse 24, Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, with three bulls and one ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young, Then they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli, and he and she says, "Oh my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. For this child, I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition, which I asked Him. Therefore, I also lent him to the Lord. As long as He lives, He shall be lent to the Lord." So they worshiped the Lord there. Hmm. Isn't that lovely? the most precious thing in her life, the thing that she prayed for the most and received, she was willing to give it back to the Lord to serve him all the days of his life. And Samuel became the first in a line of great prophets in Israel. It changed the history of Israel. All because there was a godly, praying, believing mother. Mother. Susanna Wesley was a godly, praying, believing mother who had a massive family, huge family. But every day, in the midst of the busy family life, she would take her apron and she'd pull it out of her head and every child knew, mommy's praying. Don't disturb mother, she's praying. And boy, did her prayers work. Because out of that big family... John and Charles Wesley became two of the mightiest evangelists in England that changed the course of English history. (laughs) Hannah was faithful in her prayers. She was fervent in her prayers. She was focused in her prayers, and she was famous for her prayers because if you read on to the next chapter, that's when she burst into a great prayer and song of praise. And if you read Mary's Magnificat, There's some similar words in it. She was very, Mary was very familiar with this great prayer of Hannah. So godly mothers are praying mothers. Godly mothers are woman of faith. Godly mothers are woman of the word. Uh, Come with me, please, to Acts chapter 16. verse 1 of Acts 16. Speaking of Paul, of course. Then he came to Derby in Lystra. Behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was a Greek. Uh, commentators are not sure whether the father uh, remained a pagan or whether he was a proselyte. <laughs> he turned to the Jewish faith, but we're not sure about that because If he had of, he probably would have had his son, Timothy, circumcised, which he wasn't, which Paul did later on. So we're unsure about the father, but we are sure about the mother. She was a Jewish believer. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. That's Timothy, that is. Paul wanted to have him go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders of Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Remember him? So Paul needed somebody to come alongside and help him. So here's Timothy. My own son in the faith, he called him. And in fact... Timothy went on to be a a wonderful pastor, didn't he? And in 2 Timothy, there's a little bit about him here. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did, as without ceasing. I remember you in my prayers night and day greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. What a heritage this young man had. He had a believing mother and a believing grandmother thank God for a spiritual heritage if you have one. My wee mother, God bless her is in the glory. But for a long time she carried all the spiritual cans in our household. Her husband, my father, didn't get saved. He was 75. But she was a godly mother and a praying mother. And a mother of faith and a mother of the word. In 2 Corinthians chapter three, just across the page, verse 14. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned then, that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. How did he know the Holy Scriptures? <laughs> through his mother. And probably his grandmother. He nurtured him and nursed him and taught him and read the Scriptures and instructed him in the things of God. Listen, mothers and fathers, <coughs> instruct your children in the Word of God even when they're very young. And, and thankfully, there's lots of helps for that today. You can get little booklets, even with pictures in them. Make it simple at the start. But then as they go on, and they will ask you the most profound questions, the deepest questions they will come up with. Where did God come from? Be prepared. And if you haven't got the answer, be honest with them and say, darn, that's a brilliant question. I, I'm, I'm not sure the answer to that, but I'm going to find out and I'm going to tell you the answer. Because they need to know the answer. Because let me tell you, when they go to school, when they go to college, and they, especially they go to university, and we haven't given them some answers, right, yeah. they're going to be facing some stuff out there. So it behoves us. As Christian parents, and there's something about a Christian mother that that for the most part is the glue that holds the family together. For the most part, there are exceptions to that rule, I know. But generally speaking, when a little child gets hurt, it, it wants its mommy, doesn't it? It runs for its mommy. So godly women are women of the word get to know the Word of God and teach it to them. As as the Hebrews and the Jews did to this day when they're growing up, they teach them, put it into them. And then it's there, it's in there. And you'd be surprised how much of that will come out at some point later on because you put it in there. And then, of course, there's probably the most famous one of all, Mary, in uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 26 of Luke 1. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of Davi, David. Did I say Davy there? <laughs> He's not from Northern Ireland, sure, isn't he? <laughs> in the house of David, the virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, (laughs) since I do not know a man? Then the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Can you imagine this young virgin woman to be saying, engaged to be married, only it's much more detailed than that we intend to go into this morning. And this angel comes and tells her that, basically, that she's going to become pregnant. That she's going to give birth to the Son of God. And that the power of God is going to do all of this without any help from Joseph. and she says be it unto me according to your word what incredible faith what great obedience you know she could have said but wait a minute this is impossible this has never happened in history there's no precedent for this She could have said, but what will my family say? What will my Joseph say? What will the whole village say? How humiliating, how embarrassing this is going to be for me. I'll be stigmatized for the rest of my life. But she didn't. Be it unto me according to your word. Now we don't believe for one moment that Mary was born sinless, lived sinless, and died sinless. No, it's not in the book. But she was a woman that was highly favored. Of all the people in all of Israel, just one could be chosen by God. And I know it's by grace. I understand that. But there was virtues there. There was attributes there. There was something about this young woman that God could entrust his only son to. The only one he could do it with. Godly mothers are mothers of obedience and mothers of sacrifice. She would have to make enormous sacrifices at one point she'd have to go and even live in Egypt because Herod would want to kill her son it was going to be a rough time all the tongues would be wagging misunderstood probably called names not a sacrifice to be made but she was willing to make it. She was a godly mother. You mothers know the sacrifices that only you could possibly know. The sacrifices you had to make during that nine months of pregnancy, during the birth, during the raising of your child. Tremendous sacrifice that only a mother would know. But a father wouldn't know, generally speaking. There's, there's different roles, isn't there? And, there? and there's something about the mother role, the, the nurturing role that's there. Because you were the one who held them in their womb for nine months. You were the one who gave birth to them. It's that bond, that connection that's unique. Godly mothers a women of obedience And the woman's woman of sacrifice. But here we are 2,000 years later, and we're still talking about Mary. We still honour her. And as I said the last time I taught about Mary, the Catholic Church over honours her, and the Protestant Church under honours her. But she should be honoured. Highly esteemed because she was highly favoured by God. I said at the start that this world currently doesn't esteem mothers the way they should. But God does. God does. And to be a mother is the greatest privilege and honor that you could have as a human being. Because it's the biggest responsibility that you'll ever carry. And then we'll end with with Sarah, the mother of Isaac. In first Peter chapter 3. Let me just read this to you. Peter writing in verse 1, first Peter 3 Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands that even if some do not obey the word in other words, if they're not saved they without a word without you necessarily preaching at them Will be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, or reverence, says, fear the Lord. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on a fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit. Which is very precious in the sight of God. And then he gives a great example of that. For in, ty- for in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good, are not afraid with any terror. Let me add the next verse in, ladies, okay? Husbands, likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Why did Peter say that? Well, in context, this was the Greco-Roman period. And particularly, this was the period when women and wives would dress up as elaborately as they could afford. Because remember, this was a very promiscuous society. So infidelity was rife. And so for a, for a Roman, Greco-Roman wife to keep her husband's attention would have to look the best at all times, otherwise he might stray. And that was creeping into the church. That the outward appearance was taking precedence over the inner appearance, the inner beauty. To the unbelieving husband, to the one who does not obey the word. Did you notice that? So in order to keep him from straying into the world out there, they would also adorn themselves. And there's nothing wrong with a woman looking beautiful. Nothing wrong with that. He says not just merely adorning. So there's nothing wrong with a woman looking beautiful and dressing lovely. But they were doing it for the reason is If I don't do this, if I'm not like those other women out there in the world, then I might lose my husband. And Peter says, no. That's not going to win them to Christ, actually. (laughs) What will win them to Christ is your internal beauty, your spirit, your gentle spirit, your loving spirit. Be clothed with beauty on the inside. That's what will win them. Are you with me? That's what—that's the context, that's what Peter's saying here. Now, isn't it interesting that he picks out Sarah? Ah, Sarah. Sarah and Abraham, when they left Ur of the Chaldees, he was 75, she was 65. She got her bus passed by that time. <coughs> but she was exceedingly Beautiful. And because there was famine in the land, when they got to the promised land, there was famine in the land, and he made a big mistake. Instead of trusting God in that, what did he do? He went into Egypt. He went down into Egypt. Verse 10 of Genesis 12. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abraham went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass, when he was close to entering Egypt... And he said to Sarai, his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. And he's not just flattering her here. She was. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Typical man thinking only of himself. Please say you are my sister. That it may be well with me for your sake. <laughs> really, for your sake, for me, my sake, really. And that I may live because of you. And so it was when Abraham came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman that she was very beautiful. She's at least sixty-five. She's maybe 67, 68 here. And he'd every right to be concerned. And the princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house, and he treated Abram well for her sake. And he had sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said to her, What is it you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now therefore, he, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. I'm not going to read it, but if you're into Genesis 20, later on, much later on, she must have been at least 80. And again, he strays into the land of the Philistines at Gerar. And he has this same plan. Because she's, she's 80. And he says, if they see you, they'll kill me. They just say, that's his wife. why well, she is a looker. Look at her. And they'll kill me and steal her. So you say, we're brother and sister. So Abimelech, king of the Philistines. Abimelech was a, was a title, by the way this particular king of the Philistines. The word came back that this most beautiful woman had arrived, and you he got to see her. And of course when he saw her, he was smitten. And she's 80. What? No wonder Peter picks her out. <clears throat> but in spite of this story they concocted together, and if it wasn't for the Lord waking this man up in a dream and telling him, Hey, you've got another man's wife. Scared the living blood outside of him. And of course he called Abraham and gave him a good telling off, as we would say. Both of them. Because they can talk to this the story of it being brother and sister. And it, it was a kind of a half truth. It was a half truth because it was a stepsister, which in those days was permissible. So so it was a half-truth. But a half-truth is dangerous. It got them into severe trouble. And God was not pleased. Nevertheless, in spite of all that, when you read on about Sarah, there was an inner spiritual beauty. And she was submissive to her husband. And Peter says, let me give you an example from the Old Testament. And he picks out this beautiful woman who was beautiful on the outside, but also beautiful on the inside. So godly mothers have an inner beauty. Have an inner beauty that can be seen. That people can see it. close with this the famous Proverbs 31 the words of King Lemuel the utterance which his mother taught him not name for Solomon what was he talking about Bathsheba We don't know. What my son, and what son of my womb, and what, sorry, and what son of my vows. Now let me go right down to verse 10. Skip all that. Verse 10. Who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts in her so he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. She is like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She also rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and a portion for her maidservants. She considers a field and buys it And from her profits, she plants a vineyard. Hey, modern feminist woman should read Proverbs 31. Here's a woman who's a wife, who's a mother, and who runs a business. And who's industrious and enterprising and hardworking. She considers a field, buys it, From her prophets plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. She perceives that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out by night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff and her hands holds the spindle. She extends her hands to the poor. Yes, she reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household for her household is clothed with scarlet. She makes tapestry for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates. So he's he's an official in the city. And when he sits among the elders of the land, she makes linen garments and sells them and supplies sashes for the merchants. Strength and honor are her clothing. Yes, she has all the outside beautiful clothing. But notice what he says strength and honor are her her real clothing that's what he's saying isn't it she shall rejoice in time to come she opens her mouth with wisdom and on her tongue is the law of kindness she watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness her children rise up and call her blessed her husband also and he praises her many daughters have done well but you excel them all Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. (laughs) Mm. Sons and daughters, let me say this to you. Do you ever tell your mother that you love her? Do you ever give her a big hug? My wee mother in her 80s before she dementia set in, every time I went to her wee house there, I had to give her a big hug and a kiss. And if I didn't, she would ask for it. Oh, come here, son. And sometimes, particularly as men, you get a bit of, well, if you're just a young, if you're a young priest, you say, well, that's not cool. i would be mortified. Get over your mortification. Because <clears throat> one day they mightn't be there. And you'll wish you had. Remember years ago, Evelyn? Remember years ago when I talked about something, I forget the sermon, but I talked about Telling your parents you love them and all. And Evelyn wrote a letter to her mother. Remember that? Lovely letter. Telling her much she loved her and appreciated her. All. Her mother rang her up and says, something wrong, something wrong with you? Are, you? are you dying or something? She thought she was dying and haven't told her. She was shocked. Shock your parents. Shock your mother. Tell her you love her. Give her a big hug if you can. Don't worry about being not cool or all that nonsense. Just love them. Hmm. So this is Mother's Day today. And where and when, and if you can, many of her mothers has gone to the glory and thank God they're in a better place. But where and when and if you can, let them know you love them. Somehow, so even if you write them a letter, shut a life at them. And can I just add this into let your dad know you love him. And sometimes that can be the hardest thing for men to do. Because daughters is usually daddy's girls, aren't they? Usually. And the sons is mummy's boys. Usually. Sometimes the hardest thing is to let your dad know you love him. And my dear old dad, when he was 75, had privilege led laid him to the Lord. And after that, he... We, we used to love to come and he used to see me and talk to him about church and the Bible and things and I remember and it's that generation I remember telling him down one day and I says dad I want you to know and he was quite deaf so I had to make it loud I want you to know I really love you and he didn't know what to do it was that old generation that never got that And he just sat there and looked at me as if to say, what do I do? You know? And I gave him a big hug. But I knew he was pleased. I knew he was pleased. And so, love them. And bless them. And don't eat their chocolates when you go home today. Let that be a wee treat for them. Unless they share it with you, which they probably will. If they're a godly mother, they probably will share that. All right, so you're guaranteed not to get a wee today. Amen. All right, let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.